Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. After a year of worldwide protests and a much-awaited trial, Derek Chauvin was found guilty in the murder of George Floyd. Many Americans felt relief to see some semblance of justice. But in the 24 hours after the verdict was announced, at least six more people were killed by police. How can we work together to create lasting change? In this live episode, three Roosevelt University professors unpack what the trial means for policing and black communities. You will hear from experts in law, crime reporting, and psychology. Thank you for listening to this difficult but necessary conversation. Jamar Orr, Vice President of Student Affairs and Dean of Students, will take it from here. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jamar Orr. I am the Vice President of Student Affairs and Dean of Students here at Roosevelt University. Uh, it is my pleasure to welcome you all here today to discuss the implications of the Derek Chauvin trial and police-involved violence towards communities of color. It is now my pleasure to introduce our moderator for today's event, Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilsh, as a volunteer or staff member since she graduated from law school in 1980. Additionally, Dr. Wilson serves as senior pastor of Maple Park United Methodist Church. Dr. Wilson began her career as a chemist, transitioned to the legal profession, and finally to Christian ministry. She is a co-founder of Wilson Howard PC Attorneys at Law Incorporated and a former criminal defense attorney. Dr. Wilson also developed the first public school interfaith community partnership in the United States for the Chicago Public School System in 1997 and was later employed as the manager of school climate for CPS. Dr. Wilson spent most of her adult life as a civil rights advocate. She has utilized her investigative skills developed during her years as an environmental scientist, her negotiating skills developed while practicing as a criminal defense attorney, and her conscience as a Christian to assist minorities in receiving social justice and economic parity. Dr. Wilson's commitment to youth is unquestionable. She has spent her adult life hiring, mentoring, employing, and establishing internship programs for youth. Reverend Dr. Wilson, thank you for joining us. You are a true example of leadership and represent progress towards social change. Reverend Dr. Wilson. Thank you so much. That's the best introduction I've ever had. I'm going to keep coming to Roosevelt. You make me feel important. I'm excited to be back at Roosevelt again on this particular panel because it, it, it causes me to go back to my uh, trial roots, uh, criminal defense attorney trial roots, as we uh, will look at this uh, Derek Chauvin trial, the murder of George Floyd. It is an interesting mix of public policy and coupled with uh, a jury of our peers, which made what I believe to be a, a correct decision. And many people are very excited about what that means in terms of the nation. So we have a uh, really a nice, a diverse panel of experts to look at 
what this uh, this case really means to America, what it means to African Americans and people of color, and what it means to policing and uh, the need to reform police departments all across this nation. So we have with us today Mr. John Fountain, professor of journalism. He's been an assistant professor at Roosevelt University. And he's a native of Chicago's West Side, which many say is the best side of Chicago. <laughs> you know, I read, I read what he writes all the time. He's a profound writer. He's an award-winning journalist. And he's a professor at Roosevelt University. He's a publisher. He's an author. He writes a weekly Sunday. Co- I don't know how you have time to do anything with all that you do, but he's in the major papers, the Sun-Times. He's been a national correspondent. He's everything that we would hope that a journalist would become. And so we're, we're so happy to have you as a part of this Thank panel. We also have uh, Natasha Robinson. She's a lecturer in the Department of Government, Law, and Justice. She's worked as an attorney, practicing in criminal defense for 20 years. She's uh, been in the uh, Public Defender's Office for 12 years. She also headed the Law and Public Safety Academy. Really excited to have you share with us. As a defense attorney, I know you have, you were probably sitting on the edge of your seat watching the television saying, now ask this question, don't make that objection. <laughs> I know I can feel you. Uh, and so we can ask you all kinds of questions about what you saw and didn't see. Then we have Dr. Susan Torres Harding, the clinical psychologist, professor of psychology and director of the clinical psychology program at Roosevelt University. A lot of phenomenal research and academic interests in psychology, multiculturalism, race and cultural effects on the health and well-being of diverse adults and children and families. So you can help us. We would we would love to have had you in jury selection. I mean, your your kind of insight would have helped us to predict who we should put on the jury, but also help us to think about the jurors who were selected, how they might look at different witnesses and different uh, evidence and testimony. And so we're going to have time for questions, but we're going to make sure we go straight to the panelists now. Dr. Fountain, you've written about a lot of things. What did you see as a journalist? What is your perspective on the, on the Chauvin case? Thanks so much for uh, moderating this panel and for being here. And a welcome to everyone who has joined us. I think that what I saw was reason for hope, but whether that represents progress still remains to be seen because I'm old enough to have seen the videotape of Rodney King. I'm old enough to have the name Emmett Till ringing in my ears and my mother telling me as I was going to the Mississippi Delta as a little boy, you be careful when you go uptown and don't look at white folk and strange things can happen to young black men. And Emmett Till being from Chicago and, you know, his funeral being held at the Church of God in Christ and, you know, and and seeing what Ebony and, and Jet Magazine did in publishing those pictures in which Mamie Till Mobley so bravely, so courageously declared that I am going to show the world what they did to my son. And so I have, like most Black folk in America, this trauma heaped upon trauma after trauma after trauma from Emmett Till to Brianna 
and George Floyd. And so I breathed a sigh of relief because I wasn't sure that even with the incredible video evidence that that jury was going to convict Derek Chauvin of murder. So I applauded it and I will tell you, I celebrated by saying some words that I cannot utter here. And it was, it was, it was ecstatic, but there was also a sense of uh, great pain and wondering whether this is indeed going to signal something significant in the history as we continue to move toward justice and equality for all in this country. Uh, you've been writing, you've, you've read and you've written about these police shootings that are happening all across America. Do you think that this is a major step forward in, in the finding of Derek Chauvin guilty on all counts? I think it was a significant moment. Whether it is a significant step forward remains to be seen. Because even as the jury was deliberating, or even when the trial was going on, we saw the shooting death by a white police officer, a female police officer of another black man. Right now, we're looking at the case of a black man in North Carolina and uh, just saw before coming on that police have finally agreed to allow the family to, to review the police uh, video cam. And so at the same time that we celebrate this, uh, this verdict, I am aware of what it means to be a black man in America, that no one knows, a cop doesn't know John Fountain on the street from Tyrone, and it really doesn't even matter, that I can be shot dead for reaching for my keys or my cell phone. And the truth is that we are not sure that even in that case, that there is justice that is going to be served. And in the case of Laquan McDonald, a police officer was convicted. But in the end, that police officer who shot Laquan McDonald 16 times is going to be out of jail next year, having served less than half the time that Rod Blagojevich served, and he didn't take any money, and he certainly didn't kill anybody. That's right. He didn't take a life. Attorney Robinson, you have been a defense attorney. You teach uh, criminal law. I know you watch this case every moment of it. And so as a defense attorney, what did you see? What didn't you see? And I know it's hard for you because you would not perhaps be defending uh, Derek Chauvin. So when you saw and heard the verdict as a lawyer, criminal defense attorney, but as a, a lawyer, you know the next step. So what did you what did you think about the trial, the presentation of the evidence by the prosecution and the response by the defense? Well, uh, first of all, thank you, Reverend Dr. Wilson, for having us here. When I watched the trial, I did not admittedly watch everything. And I did not watch everything because while I was interested in the process, I was also interested in the protection of my mind and my body and my soul. And so I could not ingest everything that was presented to me for me to feast upon as it relates to the trial itself, because I was watching it at the intersection and integration of being a Black woman, a mama, and a criminal defense attorney, formerly, and a professor now. So what I saw, I can divide in terms of substance, procedure, and emotion. In terms of substance, this is not the first time that we have seen a video that has gone viral 
that involved the execution of a black man in daylight, in public. And I was reminded of Eric Garner, who was murdered in broad deadlight in public, where there were multiple perspectives of his lynching, and yet there were no charges brought. And the method by which he was killed was a method that was prohibited by the New York Police Department. So I watched this with a lot of caution because as, as uh, Professor Fountain has said, we've seen this before, we've been here before. And it is disgusting and enraging for this type of public square execution to occur and it not be an anomaly. So in watching, you know, the direct and the cross, you know, sitting there and I'm like, mm, I wish I someone to just tag me in so I could just, all I need, I'm not going to be before you long. I just need a couple of minutes so I can <laughs> get in with the direct and get in with the cross and then come out. In terms of the verdict, I have been on the other side of verdicts before. And so deliberating for 10 hours or less is not a surprise. It is not any indicia that the jurors did not consider all of the evidence because there have been some juries that have taken way longer and come back with something. And you're like, did we watch the same trial? So I, I know as a citizen and as a practitioner, there is a difference between factual guilt and legal guilt. And I have been questioned by many people in their saying, well, we all saw the video. Why is there even a trial? And the thing is, is that just because there is evidence, a body cam, a videotape, that does not automatically mean that that evidence is to be used in the prosecution. And even if it is used, that does not automatically mean that there is a 100% credibility or weight given to that video by the trier of fact or the finder of fact, which is the judge or in this case, the jury. So when the prosecution said in the closing, believe what you see, uh, I thought that that was powerful because, you know, we can all be looking at the same thing and come away with different outcomes. In terms of what is next, this is the appeal process. So I want our audience to know that the appeal is coming. That should be of no surprise because anyone who has been found guilty and convicted has the right to appeal. Now that does not mean that they have the right to win the appeal, but they definitely have the right to bring it. And so Derek Chauvin's attorney is going to be taking all of the information, all of the objections, all of the things where he has from the inception of the case until now, where he has felt the judge or the jury have erred, where they have made mistakes. That is preserving issues for appeal. Because if you don't raise it, you lose it. And so what's going to happen is that Derek Chauvin ultimately is going to be sentenced. What is a document that is going to be relied upon is called a PSI or post-sentence investigation, which is like a book report. It's like a telling of who this person is, what this person has done. There will be uh, factors of aggravation, which means why should Derek Chauvin get the max? And then there will be factors of mitigation, which is why Derek Chauvin should receive the least amount in terms of punishment. 
There may be a, a hearing where the family members of Floyd testify as to how this case has affected them. The judge will issue a sentence and then there will be an appeal process where Derek Chauvin will still be in custody. But throughout that time, the Minnesota Court of Appeals will decide if Derek Chauvin should have his sentence overturned or it should be upheld. Well, I think it's really interesting that we have not seen the trial of the other officers who were there on the scene at the same time. So that's another piece of this that has to go forward. Usually they try, as you know, to take the, the one that has the most visibility. They will prosecute first the one that they believe they're going to get a guilty. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was the primary actor. So now the other police officers are major accomplices to the murder. And so their trials will be coming up. And it depends on whether they take a bench or a jury. If I were representing the officers and depending on the relationship with the judges, you would not take a jury in this climate. And the severing of their cases is very strategic. Absolutely. Because they were all arrested around the same time, but them being tried separately is strategic. And Derek Chauvin not testifying is also strategic. Yeah, because he's holding to, he's protecting his rights because he has a right to remain silent at every step of the trial. He does not have to testify, but also it's that blue coat of silence that also Mm -hmm. operates. And he is, uh, Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask uh, you, Dr. Taurus Harding, as a psychologist, you watched the trial or some parts of it. Did you watch Derek Chauvin's demeanor during the hearing? You know, I, first of all, thank you for asking me to be on the panel. It's a pleasure to be here, to be asked to present the psychological perspective. And no, you know, I feel like what John and Natasha mentioned, I felt like I had to protect myself because I found the witness testimony so traumatizing that it kind of fits along with, you know, what John was saying too, in terms of like, this is just one in a long line of traumatic words, images, and also seeing the wheels of justice. Maybe it would have been the wheels of injustice play out. And so, you know, that I think is so, for me personally, is so upsetting to watch because we've seen it so many times before, right? Where like things that are so obvious in your face. And then, and then I know as a psychologist, too, I mean, there are all kinds of rationalizations that people make you know, through legal arguments or just in the real world to, you know, just non-legal people just talking about like innocence and guilt where people make all these rationalizations to excuse why what is a very clear, very obvious form of violence is somehow explained away. And I find that really very difficult to see that happen in the criminal justice system. So I did watch some of... um, the eyewitness testimony, it's heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking to see these, especially children and these young people who were trying so hard to save the life of someone they knew that they were, his life was flowing away. And to describe that in this, what you know is a very stressful situation to be on trial and you're going to get cross-examined and so on. It's that's why people say that, you know, just the the being part of that criminal justice system itself is a second form of traumatization for people, victims, right? And so I think 
I kind of experienced some of that too. So no, I didn't watch Derek Chauvin, although I would expect from like what I've seen in the media, like just that like call, yeah, just that like impassive demeanor, which we've seen so many times too. And um, the whole trying to present yourself in a very professional way. And at the same time, it doesn't take away from the rare other reality of what happened and how he behaved too. It didn't even matter how he, in my opinion, would behave in the in the courtroom to see like that that reality was happening. I was looking at I watched him, and I was wondering because I went to the trial with Laquan, the murderer of Laquan McDonald, and the defendant sat with no emotion, very much like Derek Chauvin. That somehow they just didn't seem to care. You know, there was no remorse, no feeling. No, the witnesses are crying. And the defendant is sitting there as if he's in another world. And I thought that was interesting. And, you know, they tell the jury not to show any kind of reaction to what they hear. I'm sure that was extremely difficult in this case because you had witnesses literally one after the other crying on the witness stand, which is not typical in these kind of cases. I've never seen witnesses. I mean, they were just very distraught. And I think to be a witness in um, a murder case where you were on the scene at the time, it, it is traumatizing. And so what do you think the psychological impact will be for those young people in Minneapolis and all around the country who watched this trial? I mean, I think that, you know, unfortunately, it's, this is just one example, which Actually, having some measure of justice, too, having that guilty verdict was definitely a sense of relief. Because I think that so much of this is, you see all this trauma happening, and I think it is is one of many forms of racial trauma that people of color and that Black and Brown and other communities have to face. That you're continuously, you know, being um, seen both on in the media, so to all those, you know, horrific videos where everything, you know, people's murders, deaths are being filmed and you can watch that. And that those kind of images are really, they're a form, they're a form of trauma too, that, that people have to, and then you get all of the impact of, you know, ongoing racial trauma. And I think that one thing that's tough is that, you know, again, you can't look at this in isolation because it's a lot of people have not, not only witnessed just the trial, but have seen it in their everyday lives, have experienced, you know, um, themselves or loved ones experiencing, you know, really traumatic interactions with police. I mean, we talk at Roosevelt, for instance, we have a very diverse student body, people who live in Chicago and in classes, people bring up their experiences with these traumatic encounters with police and people they know. And so it's like one of many, it's like a continual, not necessarily an onslaught, but it's just a continual kind of series of traumas that people have to deal with. And I think the effects of those ongoing, you know, racial traumas is all of the impacts of what trauma does to the body too. And, you know, people have all these psychological impacts. A lot of times we see people, especially who live in communities and uh, people of color, especially young people too, who have to, you become very, you become aware very early on, 
you know, the fact like around seven or eight is usually when kids start to become more like, oh, wait a second, this is my racial identity. Oh, wait a second. People from my background are not valued in the society or people like politicians hate people, you know, from my group and they're, you know, saying we're all criminals, murderers and so on. Okay. Like young children are exposed to this. So that, that accumulates and it causes what we would expect with trauma, you know, um, being uh, fearful of one's safety, um, worried about surviving situations, especially, uh, you know, encounters with police. And there's a lot of socialization, a lot of parenting that happens to to help, you know, children be able to survive, you know, these encounters with police. There's a lot of, you know, just hypervigilance, which means that you're just very aware of your surroundings, you're focused on the present and, you know, and um, not sure if you're feeling safe. And um, unfortunately, that causes a lot of physical reactions, too. You know, it, it kicks off a lot of these psychobiological stress responses. So people are on edge. People feel those feelings of anxiety. They feel symptoms of anxiety, feel tense muscles. And when, if you're in that situation, it makes it harder to focus on school. It makes it harder to feel good about having good relationships with other people, especially with the police, both our people in the community. You don't know if you can trust them. You worried about, are people going to mistreat me? Are they going to stereotype me? So people, sometimes, you know, people can appear to be suspicious and they're kind of mistrustful and they can, you know, kind of viewed as like, well, what's wrong with them? <laughs> they're very suspicious, mistrustful, they're paranoid, but it's more a reaction towards this. People are not sure if they're safe in the situation and dealing with that, you know, cognitively, it's a real cognitive burden. It has all these negative effects in the body, all the stress responses. And I think that kind of played into what I think some of the reactions were after the verdict. I know for myself, like I felt a sense of relief, but I also still felt like it wasn't like I was like ecstatic or anything like that. I kind of felt like, you know, there's, I think in order to deal with that trauma, you sometimes it's protective to have a level of emotional numbing. You have to, in order to not be overwhelmed by those emotions all the time, you have to kind of switch that out, manage it. Okay, hold on. Yeah, sorry. That's to dumb me because it's it's overwhelming. <laughs> you, I'm I'm feeling everything that you said. <laughs> I've watched it. Well, then I'll stop there. I'll stop there too. Now we're gonna come back to you because I think what you're saying is important, and I want you all to jump in, at, so that we have a more a, more of a conversation. I wanted to ask each of you what you saw and what you felt from your various disciplines, but as we look at this case, it it uh, all of us realize that this is not the tipping point necessarily. It's a step in the right direction. How do you feel, John? You're the only male on this panel. You're in the minority. And you're an African-American male. And as you said earlier, you're at risk. It could happen to you, shirt and tie notwithstanding. Professor of journalism notwithstanding. Powerful writer, doesn't matter. No black man living in America, walking while black, driving, moving. What do you see in terms of some actions, listening to Dr. Uh, Taurus Harding and all of the um, psychological, the impact of this trauma of police-involved shootings of unarmed murders, really, of unarmed black men? And like you said, the day of the trial, the day of the verdict, Another shooting. It's like, so what do we need to do? All of you, 
Well, Starwood's the only man because he's the only man on the panel and he's the most at risk. I, I think, well, thank you. Thank you, uh, Reverend Dr. Wilson. And the esteemed panelists, you, you guys have, you all have covered this in such a way that is moving and makes me feel some degree of comfort as a, as a black man, because sometimes to walk in this, in this skin and to live while black, breathe while black, drive while black, professor while black, be a journalist while black, it is taxing. And I don't say that to say that, you know, to whine. It is the reality of living in America in this skin. And, and I am also, as a Black man, fully aware that my suffering is not suffering alone. That, you know, when that I feel as strongly of, uh, about Breonna Taylor and the injustice there. And, uh, uh, and Jeanette uh, Young, I think, the woman who was uh, whose house was raided by police officers, and she was naked, and they stood there, and nobody clothed her or, or or averted their eyes. And so it is that kind of injustice that is inflicted upon all of us as a people that is uh, is this kind of trauma that is almost like I would dare say Groundhog Day. It just keeps on playing over again and again and again, and we ask in our soul. When is this going to end? And I think that part of what needs to happen is policy change. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure that police are held accountable for their actions. You don't get license to kill and you ought to be held to a different standard. And so I think while the verdict is a, a step in the right direction, we still need to see police held accountable by their own peers. I dare say that good cops know who the bad cops are on the police they force. They do. They do. And so they need to call that out. And someone mentioned the blue code of, of silence. I and, 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 and folks talk about black folk in the neighbor in, in our communities not wanting to quote unquote snitch. Cops don't snitch on each other. That's right. Look at the reports that they file after there has been a shooting and see whether they jibe with the video or with the evidence that ultimately is borne out. So I think there needs to be policy change. There needs to be policing reimagined and understanding that in some ways I've heard uh, folks say that the way policing is playing out today is the way it was meant to play out. The fact that policing emerged, evolved from the old slave patrols that became the militia groups that enforce the Jim Crow. And so we have to change. And the last thing I'll say is this, that you cannot legislate matters of the heart. And so we have got to change America. Dr. King said, where do we go from here? Chaos or community? And it is an important question. It is important for America to begin to see all of its citizens as entitled to, it is a right as an American citizen to justice and equality. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Well, I think we're at chaos for sure. Attorney Robinson and Dr. Torres Harding, what do we do going forward? You talked, one talked about the trauma, the psychological, psycho-emotional trauma that all of us experience in different ways. You talked about the next steps after this verdict. What do we do? 
mothers and young people, what do they do? Because they don't feel safe. They don't trust the police. So what do we do? Uh, I would start off by saying that to Professor Fountain's point and to your point, Reverend Wilson, is that, yes, accountability is an issue, but I can't be fully held accountable if I'm not first fully transparent. If I am not taking my own decisions and beliefs and privilege and bias and looking at them, not just through the light of my own experiences, but through the light of the persons who I am supposed to quote, serve and protect. I don't know if I would characterize this as being more cynical and no offense to you know my brother, but I don't know if he's the most at risk because there are too many stories and too many reports of black women who, while they may not be chronicled in the same way that Black men are chronicled, they are definitely being killed, murdered, shot down, lynched. And when I say Black women, I am including Black transgendered women. Those stories are not being told and they're not being shared in the same way or with the same gravity of uh, concern as, you know, say others. I know that every time I try to have a sigh of relief, I can't breathe. I can't catch my breath because in the same way I was waiting for the Chauvin verdict, it is the same way that I I, mean, I couldn't even have a moment of silence before there was yet another name that came across my text notifications. And so to answer your question, where do we go from here? I don't know if I would recommend that we have any forward movement until we take account for where we are right now. Where we are right now is to paraphrase Dr. William Augustus Jones, who wrote the book, God in the Ghetto. He posited that one's theology then determines one's anthropology, which then determines their sociology. So what a person deifies, what they worship, then determines how they order the humans in their society. And then that determines how they treat the humans in their society. We live in a country that puts in a hierarchy, white, male, militarism, capitalism. And so anything other than that, we are deemed to be the other. And so if we have policies and procedures and persons who weaponize their privilege and their preference, then we are never going to get the justice and the equality that we deserve. It is in the laws of this country where persons' privileges have been weaponized and turned into legislative, executive, judicial outcomes the Constitution of the United States, Reconstruction Laws, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the Civil Rights Voting Act, New Jim Crow. All of these are times in history where we just, and when I say we, I'm talking about Blacks, Black community, where is always something that is created to cover us. But under the covering is where the killing resides. When you have police officers 
who are weaponizing their racism through discretion, where it's not the gun or the taser or the billy club that is the weapon, but it's their discretion, Yes. then I don't know where to go from here because my blackness is, it, I can't take this off. And yet that is the weapon, uh, to quote uh, Reverie Trace and Blackman, that is the weapon that they fear. I can't get rid of this. So I don't know where to go from here. What I will say is that I believe that discussions like this are helpful. But to be quite honest, I'm tired of talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I'm yeah. tired of talking because our country loves history, but yeah. rarely do we make progress. We love to talk about it. But when it comes to not when it comes to addressing our weaponized discretion, not just on the street, but in classrooms, in boardrooms, in legislative chambers, in the ballot box. We run our mouths all the time. And yet when it comes to, you know, the seat at the table, if you will, my invitation gets lost. What I need you to do, we're going to do a round robin. I got questions in the chat. I need y'all to make shorter answers. Uh, can, can I interject here just for one minute? No, just, no, no. Just hold one, on. One you, can, you come back with your interjection. One minute. I got to get to one of the questions is, <laughs> was the, the the demeanor of the defendant a tactic in the trial? Mm. You know, his stoic nature mm. was, do you think that was his defense mechanism, Dr. Torres, as he's sitting there showing no emotion? you think that was a defense moves to protect him from what he was feeling? Perhaps, you know, although I think definitely I'm sure that he was instructed to behave in the same way, you know, by his lawyer's legal team. However, I think that, you know, it might also be a product of just dehumanization. You know, I've always been surprised by the ability that people have to really dehumanize people from different groups. And there's been a long history, of course, of that, those processes happening in this country too, uh, directed towards, because America, of course, invented that whole idea of white and black and created these categories. And so all the, de again, long history of just how people just rationalize why it is okay to set, to enact violence on people. And a big part of the dehumanization. If you do not see that person as worthy of having rights or dignity or even a life, because I, I remember um, when George Floyd's death, you know, made news, you know, a year ago, where people were saying, well, he was trying to pass all this counterfeit money, something like that. Again, and, what, and that's what they usually do, too, with these whenever. Well, you know, he wasn't a Boy Scout. He got all this stuff. Well, he had run into the law. And I think that was that's, an, that's a cognitive strategy of dehumanization. It, you know, if you paint that person as not worthy of human rights or dignity, that it's okay to kill them. Like, it's, that's a very extreme kind of view. But I, I personally think that... Howie Derek Chauvin and other, you know, police officers who do that, that, that they probably so dehumanize people, they don't see them as worthy of life. They're just a criminal. And it can get very extreme over time. And, and unfortunately, that's such a stage for violence. So he may have gotten very used to just not even thinking about him as a real person or so caught up with his own rationalizations for what I did was procedurally correct. However, he did in his own minds. 
he's no longer capable of being able to extend that compassion. Professor Fountain, I, I agree with you. What do you, you want to jump in? <laughs> I forgot my point. No, I didn't. I'm kidding. No, you didn't. didn't. Don't even try it. <laughs> no, what, what, what I want to say is I, I am so grateful for everyone's profound insights. And, and thank you, uh, Professor Attorney Robinson, for, uh, for your insight. And I just want to add, you know, and say that our suffering as Black men and Black women is not separate. We have reigned together since Mother Africa, and we have suffered together. But it is an empirical truth that more Black men were lynched and more Black men are shot dead by police. I have Black sons and Black daughters, and I give my sons a different speech, the talk, than I've given to my daughters. I don't worry about a police officer seeing my daughters as a threat, but my six foot four son and my six foot one son, I know that it is a different threat. And so I say that to say that if my son were out there who was killed by a police officer, it would not only impact my son, it would impact me, it would impact his mother, it would impact his grandmother, it would impact his black aunts, his black sisters. So. This trauma that we have suffered collectively, I think that one of the things that is really disturbing for me is that there, and I'm not saying you're do, you have done this, but there is the sense within our own community that we are weighing the suffering of each other based on gender. The crimes against the murder against transgender women is vile, unjust, should not be happening. And we have to be as outraged about that as we are about any murder that is happening against any of us. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. My students and I, this over the last year, launched a project that was from my heart and soul, looking at 51 mostly African-American women who were murdered since 2001. And so I can't afford to say that I'm going to focus only on Black. I'm focused on our people. And our people suffer. And we have got to understand it. And, and let me just interject this, that I'm concerned when a white cop kills us, but I'm concerned when Jocelyn Adams is sitting in a car with a father on the west side of Chicago where I grew up and at McDonald's drive-through and someone opens fire in broad daylight yeah. and kills this child. And I don't hear anybody saying black lives matter. <laughs> black lives do matter. And they have to, it has to become more than a hashtag. We have to embrace that as a community and be as outraged. And I think we have to begin to police the community ourselves. Yeah. We talk about re reimagining police. We have to reimagine neighborhoods. There Amen. was a time, once upon a time, when your neighbors knew each other. Yeah. And there was an expectation of behavior in our neighborhood, whether you were the police or Pookie Ray Ray, you knew you had to walk a certain way when you went by Miss Jones' house because Miss yeah. Jones didn't work because she's retired and she would tell what you did. So you had to behave a certain way. There were watchers in the community, neighbors who nosy neighbors who knew everything that was going on, and that they, they, they kept watch, but they also kept some balance in the community. 
And so I agree with you. The outrage does not seem to rise to the same level when we kill each other. Reverend Jackson often says that blacks kill blacks, it's Miller time. Whites kill blacks, it's riot time. Mm. I mean, that that's just a different in our psychological perceptions of our lives. They matter when a white person kills us, but apparently it doesn't seem to matter when we kill each other. So I think that's that's another uh, discussion. Uh, two questions in the chat were about mistrial. Defense made several motions that were denied calling for a mistrial. One, they said that the jury was not sequestered. And I thought about that. That means they were not sequestered up until it was time to deliberate for a verdict. Normally, when you tell me as a juror to, when you tell the jury, don't talk to anybody, don't watch television, you don't have to worry about it because you put them in that jury room. They stay in a hotel together until they reach a verdict. And I mean, there's several strategies to that. And Attorney Robinson, you know that oftentimes when the jury came back quickly, I knew they were in favor of prosecution. Usually when they take a long time to deliberate, it's going to be a hung jury where they're wrestling with whether they, sh they have found reasonable doubt. So I was glad they came back quickly. That meant there was no doubt in their mind he was guilty. Now, I didn't think he, they, they were going to find him guilty of everything. But the mistrial motions, do you think that they might be able to, uh, they made those motions so that they could appeal based on those factors. The jury was not sequestered and, and the fact that the whole trial was publicized on television. Even though the judge told the jury and asked them every day, did you watch television? Did you read the newspaper? Did you talk to anyone? What do you think about that? to be in alignment with what you said about short answers. The, the, the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> the answer is yes. Uh, the, the, the longer answer is that, yes, it, it is strategic. The defense attorney has to make every effort to preserve issues for appeal. So the sequestering, asking for a mistrial for that, he has to do that, otherwise he loses that right. Saying that comments made outside of the courtroom, such as the comments by Congresswoman Maxine Waters, whether or not he actually is correct with his uh, assessment, he still has to make those objections so that he can preserve it for appeal. So a mistrial that he made the suggestion for is not necessarily saying that he believes a mistrial can happen, but that he is preserving it for a greater argument later on with the Minnesota Court of Appeals. So the other question that's in the chat, and I keep trying to read the, this small print in the chat, <laughs> they want to know, do you think there's any possibility or hope for a change in how we perceive each other? I'd like to take I, that one. I because I definitely think because everybody else is like, no. <laughs> I think the answer is yes. And I think it, it mirrors actually what Professor Robertson was saying earlier too about just the stories and how it's important to hear people's stories. And actually, that is a really great way for people to restore humanity instead of looking at statistics or being part of a legal proceeding where everything is so highly regimented. Just listening to people's stories, hearing about their lives, their backgrounds, go a long way towards restoring those connections. People, and actually in my field in psychology, people have talked a lot about community policing. We have a long amount of 
like decades of research show that, that those are very effective strategies to help repair some of those fractured um, relationships between communities and police. And I think part of that is because it involves that contact, people getting to know each other and knowing that, oh, you're not this scary other person. And, you know, they do all this dehumanization, othering and so on, but getting to know each other's people can go a long ways. Unfortunately, we're in a country where segregation is just as bad as it was when, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, you know, has been happening that that works against our connections, but definitely hearing each other's stories, working together on equal playing fields, that's, that I think is from the psychological perspective is probably going to be the best strategy to try to give back people's sense of humanity and counteract these really negative forces. How do white women or white people normalize this type of conversation and have it in other sectors? This last question I think we can do. I'm filtering my answer because I have an answer, but I don't. <laughs> I, um, you want me to answer it? I, no, I can, I can answer it. Um, <laughs> for myself, <laughs> me, myself personally, as we would say, I don't know necessarily how to teach people how to do what needs to be done. I'm sure that there are certain nuances that are present when having those conversations. But I, what I will say, and I will hush, is that I get fatigued with people asking me to teach them about well, how do I engage in diversity and inclusion? And it's like asking someone who has received a wound, well, teach me how to help you heal. Teach me how to help you not be subject to this type of mistreatment. I would just say, just had a conversation. <laughs> the conversation, it, it, it ain't meant to be comfortable. It's, it's not meant to pat you on the back. It's, it's meant to be had. And I applaud the person who posted it and say, well, how do I have this conversation? That is a first step, is in allyship. Have the conversations and hold your people, your allies, whomever your circle is, hold them accountable in word and deed. It goes past conversations and it goes to action. I would like to answer that one too quickly, if I can. Um, you know, as a non-Black person of color, I mean, I feel like sometimes I get, feel a little caught between, you know, the whites and the Black communities and we'll learn about both and and also working with white students who ask these same questions. I think that one thing that's for myself and my own journey in terms of becoming more racially aware and understand how it impacts my own life and, and the people I work for and work with is just, I think that there's a lot, there's so much information out there that people don't know about. And, and right now we're in the moment where a lot of white people are saying, well, what do I do now? And they're looking towards the people of color. And like, like Professor Robinson said, people, you know, everyone I talk to that's a psychologist of color is like, we're all sick of talking about this. We're exhausted. But the reality is there's so many resources and information out there. It's been around for decades. I think just, you know, kind of learning more about it, reading, just consuming media, you know, watching. I mean, it's all there. People have been saying the same things in terms of how do we transform a society literally for decades, you know. These are not new messages. So I think of far away individuals, some of it's a lot of just kind of discovery was often on the fringes, becoming more mainstream. And also just talking about it and, and just having conversations, but then also just trying to just develop those relationships and just learn more about, 
these different communities, spending time in these communities too that are different from your own community. I think that that exposure will also help people to be able to just talk about that and learn those new experiences and, and understand just race and how it impacts their own life. Because a lot of times that's invisible to white people because they can arrange their lives so they don't have to address any kind of race difference. So I encourage people to engage with it, learn about it, and make you know make those inroads. It's a great way to start. Well, I think the first question I would ask is, do you see me? Mm. And then I would ask, how do you see me? Mm. Do you see me through the, the lens of media, the television shows, the music that sees me as less hardworking, more violent, more sexual than I am, less intelligent than I am? How do you see me? And then I, I think that to help you heal, you must know that I want to help you heal because racism is a sickness that pervades America. It's not normal. You go around the world, this is not the pattern. It's more people of color than any, than any white people. We are the majority. And so if you look at all of the continents, it's people of color. And so this small minority has tried to convince the majority there's something wrong with us. No, you have the illness and we're trying to help you heal. That's why I don't have a problem talking to them. But the treatment is painful because it requires a, a drastic change in, in thinking. But one of the things we have to realize, we're all on this planet together. And we have to learn to live together. We've learned to live apart, but we've not learned how to live together. Yeah, I think that's the lead in that that the person's asking because, you know, she's talking about how as a white person to talk to other white folks. And so I think that that is a, a good start. Well, and, and the question she has to ask him, how do you see them? Because it, the lens through which you look at people will determine how you treat them. If, I, mm -hmm. if you and I walk down the street and if I see these young black men with pants hanging down, caps turned backwards, sagging, I don't know how they walk in the first place. If I see them as thugs, I will treat them differently than if I see them as my son who needs to turn his cap around. Or if I see young ladies, I got on the bus one day and when I first got on the bus, it was you know, mostly old people. And we were quiet, we didn't have all this noise. Whole group, we stopped at a school, whole group of girls got on the bus. They cursed everybody that they could publicly loud, you know, because they, they can't hear. So I said, I need you to stop. Mm. And they looked at me, I said, because it's, 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 it's giving me a headache. So if you could just do this, not curse anymore until I get off the bus, I'd be grateful because it's giving me a headache and I'm old and I just can't take it anymore because <laughs> they had cursed for about four blocks. I don't even know what they were upset about. And they kind of looked at me, I guess the, you know, the, Mingly gray at that time, hair made a thing. She just old and crazy. So they did stop because I said, This is just not normal for me. And <laughs> it's really bothering me. Sometimes, and I didn't say it, you know, as if I was uh, really threatening them with anything. I just said, I put it on me. Help me <laughs> so I can make it to my stop with this noise. And I think sometimes it's the approach 
that we have to begin to shift the approach. And white America has to shift its thinking of us. We're no longer slaves. We never were, never should have been. And we're not property. We're humans. We're thinking people. We are loving people, caring people. We have families. And that's why I get a pro- I have a problem with the media images of us because it perpetuates this thug mentality with drug dealers and drug users and whatever. You back? Where you been? <laughs> I've been listening with with my ears open and my brain. How much longer do we need to go? <laughs> it was phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to our moderator, Dr. Wilson as well as all of our panelists, Professor Fountain, Professor Robson, Professor Torres Harding, you all were simply amazing. You can't tell from the comments in the comment section, it seems like we need a part two of this conversation uh, because we could really talk about this for a lot longer. Uh, thank you again, everyone who was able to join us. Thank you so much. Thank all of you for tolerating me. Thank you. Thank you. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.